Amen. Thank you, Chris. Um, what well, we continue today in our series called The Last Week, we're walking toward the cross, we're heading toward Easter, and so we're taking a look at the last week of Jesus' life, and today we will cover the triumphal entry. Um, and so if you have your Bibles, you can flip over to John chapter 12. John chapter 12, there are several other places in the Gospels where this story of the triumphal entry is uh, captured, is talked about, uh, but we're going to be looking at the second half of the Gospel of John through this series and so we're going to be in John chapter 12 today. Um, we're going to read together John chapter 12, verses 12 through 15. So you can flip over there. And then, if, as is our custom here at Hebron, in honor of the Scriptures, I'm going to ask if you would stand for the reading of God's Word. Um, we'll read verses 12 through 15 together. Again, we stand out of respect for God's Word, but also as a reminder to us that where does truth come from? The Bible. There we go. It was interesting because we were in our small group this past week and several of the guys, because we were tossing out different ideas, different theories that people had about the doctrine of hell. That was our topic. In case you wanted to come and join us and be on Wednesday nights, the guys' small group for studying the doctrine of hell. Great way to keep attendance up, by the way. <laughs> I don't know. Um, but in any case, um, so we've been studying that and uh, on Wednesday nights. And so several of the guys at different points made the statement that, well, that's a nice little theory there, but that's not what's in the Bible. And where does we, where do we get our truth from? Well, we get it from God's Word. So it's so good to hear that, um, that rehearse that we do each and every week around here, uh, that it's planting itself in our hearts. So that when we go outside of this place and we hear things that are not from God's Word, we hear things that are not truth, we can immediately say, hold on, time out just a second, because that's not in God's Word, that's not truth. So we stand each week to re be reminded of that. Let's read together John chapter 12, verses 12 through 15. Here we go. The next day, the great crowd that had come for the feast heard that Jesus was on his way to Jerusalem. They took palm branches and went out to meet him, shouting, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, blessed is the king of Israel. Jesus found a young donkey and sat upon it, as it is written, do not be afraid, O daughter of Zion, see, your king is coming, seated on a donkey's colt. You may be seated. Thank you so much. All right, so I just want to walk through these verses and take a look at this account of the triumphal entry where Jesus enters into Jerusalem. It begins here in verse 12. It says, The next day the great crowd that had come for the feast of Passover heard that Jesus was on his way to Jerusalem. Now, I don't know if I gave this to the guys in the back. I've thrown curveballs at them here lately. But there is a, I don't know if we have a map or not. Yes, no, no. Oh, we got a map. I'm, it's amazing how quick they are. They are <laughs> remarkable. In any case, on the map, you can see there's a town of Bethany, kind of situated west of Jerusalem, and then there's the town of Bethphage, which is a little bit north, and I'm sorry, Bethany is east of Jerusalem, and then uh, Bethphage is a little bit north and east of Bethany. And so this is the route that Jesus takes coming into Jerusalem. He goes from Bethany, where he had just been, he heads up to Bethphage, and Bethphage sits pretty close to the pinnacle of uh, the Mount of Olives, and by the time Jesus gets to crest the Mount of Olives, he has this beautiful vista of the city of Jerusalem, he can see the temple wall there, the temple mount, all the, all, all the city of Jerusalem is right there in front of him with the Kidron Valley down below him. And so this is the route that Jesus would have taken on his way into Jerusalem. And the scriptures say that um, he was on his way there. So let's keep in mind, though, that the crowd that would have greeted Jesus at the time would have been a crowd in the tens of thousands. You say, Gordon, what makes you think that it's in the tens of thousands? Well, again, Josephus, a historian from Jesus' day, tells us that there was over 250,000 Passover lambs that were sacrificed on 
Passover weekend when Jesus was crucified. Wrap your head around that for just a minute because you put out here in the stadium down the street about what, 94, 95,000 might max that place out. We're talking about 250,000 lambs, each one of them being an, being an individual person. That person would have traveled to Jerusalem most likely with family members. And so the city of Jerusalem, which normally holds about 100,000 people, would have been swelled to over a million people when Jesus, uh, on the on the at Passover when Jesus was crucified. And so these people are coming to town and some of the outlying cities like Bethany, like Bethphage, some of the little suburbs would have also been filled to capacity. Um, people would have been camping out on the, on the hillsides. There have been people everywhere in every hotel and every inn all around the area. And so these people are there in Jerusalem. They've heard about Jesus. They heard that he had just raised this guy Lazarus from the dead. They want to see this guy. They want to hear what he's all about. They've been hearing about his miracles now for some time. And so Jesus is on his way into town, and he's greeted by these massive crowds of people. Not a couple hundred folks, but like ten people deep all the way on his way into Jerusalem. And then the text says, verse 14, that Jesus found a young donkey, that he sat upon it, and it, as it is written, verse 15, Do not be afraid, O daughter of Zion. See, your king is coming, seated on a donkey's colt. You say, Gordon, why a donkey? I mean, have you ever seen a donkey? Why not ride in like Zorro on a horse, right? Why not ride in like the Lone Ranger, you know, on Tonto, or not Tonto, that was the, uh, the Indian, but riding in, whatever the horse's name, what was the horse's name? Somebody tell me. Yeah, okay, I haven't watched many of those episodes. But in any case, so why not ride in like that, you know, like a conquering uh, warrior might do? Why ride in on a little donkey, Gordon? What's going on with that? Well, the reason why Jesus rides in on a donkey is because he quoted right here from the scriptures, because the scriptures say this is how the Messiah is going to come. Zechariah chapter 9 and verse 9 says these words, uh, rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion, shout daughter of Jerusalem, see your king comes to you righteous and having salvation, gentle and riding on a donkey. The scriptures foretold that this is how the Messiah would come into Jerusalem, Jesus is merely fulfilling what the scriptures teach. And so Jesus rides into town on a donkey. Verse 13, I'm going to go backwards for just a moment. It says that as he's riding into town, people took palm branches and they went out to meet him. They were shouting, Hosanna, which means salvation. That Salvation has come to the city of Jerusalem, to the people of Israel. Blessed is the king of Israel, they shouted. So the people recognized, friends, that Jesus was king and they were recognizing him as a conquering king they're out there with their palm branches they're out there with their coats they're laying these things down the road and uh, they're excited that their king has come and what they expect him to do is to ride into jerusalem to get the armies of israel together and then to begin routing the romans out of jerusalem and then further out of the land of israel and so jesus is expect or they're expecting jesus to do this they're expecting him to come out as this conquering king and to completely eliminate the Romans out of the territory. Um, and again, these crowds are really big. They're very excited. They're shouting, salvation has come. Finally, we're going to be rid of the Romans. It says that they were waving these palm branches. Again, this is the way you would have um, greeted a conquering king or conquering leader coming back into town. Is my audio okay? I keep hearing something bump, bump, bump. No, it's me. Aha. Okie dokie. Or y'all didn't y'all didn't notice that? I noticed that. But anyway, maybe y'all didn't notice that. Um, I'm gonna go
Y'all good? Check, check, check. One, two. There we are. All right. Uh, you probably could have heard me okay without, but that's okay. All right. So we're expecting. So they got these palm branches that they're waving, and we're. And this was very customary in Jesus' day. That would have been the way that they welcomed the the conquering kings into town. The Romans did this. Uh, the Israelites were doing this. It was very customary. It says that they were throwing their coats out on the road. Again, we still do customs like this today, where we have the red carpet. Right? We roll out the red carpet for people who are special. When the bride walks into uh, the sanctuary, we sprinkle the flower petals on the path on her way. And these are just ways of recognizing, of honoring someone who we regard as special. Um, Okay, verse 17. Now the crowd was with Jesus when he called Lazarus from the tomb and raised him from the dead, and they continued to spread the word. That is about Jesus' miraculous powers, um, and so the crowd was really enthused by all this. And as a result of that, verse 18, many people, many people, it says, because they had heard that Jesus had given this miraculous sign about Lazarus, went out to meet him or to greet him. Friends, Jesus is at the height of his public ministry. He is the most popular now that he has ever been in all of his days of doing ministry. He is a rock star riding into town on this donkey. This is the Messiah. This is the guy that's going to deliver us from the Roman occupation government, and he's going to rid them out of here. We're so excited. They're shouting, salvation, 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 salvation has come. They're so excited about all of this. It's interesting um, uh, and, and so as a result of that, Jesus is really there at the height of his ministry. Um, but if look at verse 18, it says that the Pharisees said to one another, see, this is getting us nowhere. Let us see, let, look at how the whole world has gone after him. And so basically what they're saying there is that he has no, we have no alternative what to do with him, but to take him out. And so the fix is in against Jesus now. They, the, the doctors of the law, the Pharisees, know that they're going to do some way to wipe him out. They don't know exactly, exactly when that's going to happen. They want it to happen over Passover, but the fix is in, and Jesus' fate has been sealed, at least by their accounts. Okay, well, that's our passage for today, and so that means it's time for us to ask our most important question. It's the question we ask every week around here. What difference does all this make to my life, right? You say, Gordon, I mean, that's really great that Jesus was riding in town. It's good to know that he was at the height of his public ministry, but he's riding on a donkey, right? And I really don't like riding on donkeys. So, I mean, what difference does any of this make to me? Well, that's a really great question. Let's see if we can answer that for you. You know, it's interesting that with all of this hero worship that's going on, with all of the people that are giving all this attention to the Lord Jesus, that none of it, none of what happens goes to Jesus' head. He never has this moment of, well, yeah, absolutely. Uh, bring it. Let me hear it. Get it a little louder, right? That kind of thing. Jesus is not, he, none of this ever goes to his head. Even with all the fame, he still treats every person from this point forward all the way to the cross with complete dignity. He treats every person with equal worth. Um, none of this goes to his head. Here's a really interesting fact, that this occasion in Jesus's public ministry is the one time and the only time that Jesus ever allows the crowds to uh, to call him king. It's the only time in all of his public ministry that he allows them to do that. Certainly he is the king. He's king of kings and lord of lords. He could demand that everybody call him king and worship him and bow down to him. I mean, he's God in the flesh. He has that right to do that, but yet God, Jesus never does that. Um, And so, but except on this one occasion, Um, and he does this both during his public ministry and in the time leading up to his ministry, as well as after the triumphal entry. So let me show you an example of how Jesus 
uh, rather denies this worship, this hero worship uh, going on or that could have gone on in his life. Look at Luke, I'm sorry, Matthew chapter 20, uh, beginning at verse 20. This is an example of Jesus showing himself, presenting himself not as a king, but rather as a servant. Um, it says, then the mother of Zebedee's sons, who are Zebedee's sons? A little Bible trivia, anybody know? James and John. That's right, we learned that earlier in the Gospels. These are the sons of Zebedee. They become two of Jesus' early disciples, and so they're following after Jesus. It says on this particular occasion, Matthew chapter 20, that the mother of James and John came to Jesus with her two boys, and she has a request. Um, and Jesus says, what is it that you want to ask me? What's your favor? Uh, she said, grant that one of these two sons of mine may sit at your right and the other at your left. So Jesus, I know that you're going to go into Jerusalem. I know that you're going to be this conquering king. I know that you're going to kick the Romans out. I know that you're going to set yourself up and your kingdom up as the supreme ruler of the entire territory of Israel and that entire area. And when you do that, I would like to make the request that one of my boys be your prime minister, sit on your right, and the other of my boys be your vice prime minister, sit on your left. Pretty presumptuous of mama, don't you think? Um, but here's the interesting thing that we learned this in this scenario. James and John are standing right there with her. Like they went and got their mom to make this request to Jesus. They go get her and they bring her with them to make, they don't have the guts, I guess, that maybe they thought their mom had more sway than they would. I'm not sure how that worked out. But in any case, they bring their mom with them to make this lame request that, hey, look, Jesus, we know that you're going to go into Jerusalem. We know you're going to kick the Romans out. And that when that happens, we want to be your number one and your number two. And then you know what would have happened if Jesus had granted that request? They would have been like, well, who's going to be the prime minister? And then James and John would have been whining and, I want to be the number one. No, you got to be the number two. You're the younger. I'm the older. You know, there would have been this horrible uh, thing going on. Um, but again, uh, they went and got their mom to make this request for them. Now the other disciples, how do they respond to this? What's their reaction when they find out that James and John have made this request of Jesus? It says, verse 24, when the other ten heard about this, they were indignant about it. They were really upset about it. What were they really upset about? Because they hadn't thought to go get their mom to come and ask Jesus so that they could be the prime minister or the vice prime. I mean, they're like, why? I can't believe. I mean, these guys beat us to the punch. They're so upset about all of this. And so they're all mad at James and John. They're all bickering. Well, we're the, you know, why wouldn't we be the prime? And so there's all this back and forth going on between the disciples, and things are just melting down. And finally, Jesus just says, hey, look, guys, whoa, time out just a second. Whoa, cut it out. Stop the whining train, right? Come on, let's huddle together. Let's talk about this, and here's what Jesus says. He gives a teaching, verse 25. He says, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles, that is the rulers of foreign lands outside of Israel, you know how they lead their people. He says, you know that they lord their power over their people. Verse 26, but he says, that's not the way that I want it to be with you. Here's how I want you to lead. He said, instead, whoever wants to become great among you, must be your servant. And whoever wants to be first must be your slave. So Jesus says, guys, real spiritual greatness, like if you want to be great, if you want to be a person that the world talks about, he says the way to that is not through position, it's not through status, rather it's through being a servant. 
And then Jesus said, let me tell you about myself. Verse 28, just as the Son of Man, that's Jesus, did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. He said, guys, this is my path for you. This is how I want for you to live and conduct your life. And remember, friends, right after the triumphal entry, right after everybody greets Jesus on his way into town, right after he's recognized as the great king and he's at the pinnacle of his ministry, what's one of the things he does? Not two, three, three days afterwards. He's found in the, or four days afterwards, he's found in the upper room and he's washing the disciples' nasty, dirty feet. And he says, verse John chapter 13 and verse 12, do you understand what I've done for you? Verse 13, you call me teacher and Lord, titles of prominence, right? And I deserve them. That's what I am. However, verse 14, now that I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also should wash one another's feet. In other words, be willing to do the lowly tasks. Be willing to humble yourself. That's what this is all about. Be willing to humble yourself. Be willing to be a servant. And this is the way that Jesus presented himself. Paul said in Philippians chapter 2 and verse 6, he said that when it comes to Jesus, he didn't consider his equality with God, his divinity, to be something to be grasped. That is something to be wielded around and held out there for everybody to look at and say, hey, look, I'm God. Everybody bow down and worship me. That's not the way Jesus approached us in his relationship with us. But rather, he made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant. Friends, Jesus could have said, me? Go down there? and hang out with them? I'm God. I'm holy. Why in the world would I want to lower myself to such a state? I mean, Father, you've got to be kidding me. Find somebody else. Send one of the angels down. Not me. Not me. You know who I am. And yet Jesus lowered himself. Jesus humbled himself. He followed the pathway of servanthood. You say, Gordon, I get all that. I see what you're saying, how Jesus humbled himself. But what is the point of all of this for us as Christians? Well, the point is that Jesus Christ wants for us to present ourselves just like he presented himself, just like he encouraged the disciples to present themselves as a servant of all people. That Jesus doesn't want us to go around demanding worship. Jesus doesn't want us going around uh, demanding credit. That, but that Jesus wants us to be a humble people who are willing to wash feet, people who are willing to take a servant's attitude toward others. And he promises that if we live this way, that he will reward us for it. Luke chapter 6 and verse 38, the Lord Jesus said, Give, give, and it will be given back to you. A good measure, pressed down, shaken together, running over, and will be poured out into your lap. You say, Gordon, I mean, that's remarkable. Jesus is encouraging us to give. Jesus is saying, let your life be poured out for other people. And that's really great. I love you, man. But if I, you don't understand the world that the rest of us live in, right? You're sitting here in an office. You're reading your books. You're reading the Bible every day. You get up there. You preach on Sunday. You hang out around the church house. I mean, the world I live in. If I was to give, right? 
if I was to just pour myself out there and allow other people to, to, to build them up and just pour myself out as a, if I were to show my soft underbelly, right, to the world, the world would just have its way with me. I mean, it's a dog-eat-dog world out there. People would eat my lunch if I lived like this, if I was to give, right, like Jesus is telling me to do. And you know what? You're absolutely right. If you were to just give of yourself, like the Lord Jesus is encouraging us to do, if you were to become a servant of all, like the Lord Jesus is encouraging us to do, that's exactly what's going to happen. The world's going to take advantage of you. The world's going to take the resources that you offer of yourself, your time, and they will take advantage of it every chance that they can. Except we're forgetting one variable, and that variable is God. You know who made us that promise? That if you give, God will give back to you. God said that that's the way it'll be. You give, the world may take advantage. But God said in your giving that he will pour it back upon you, give it back to you into ways that are running over. And the second thing that I'd like to say is that we ought to remember who the world holds up as its heroes. You know, does anybody know the banker or the president of Wells Fargo? Merrill Lynch, Bank of America, corporate, whatever. Right? No, we don't have, have any clue who that is, right? We don't know uh, anybody? No, don't know that. I don't know that. I have no clue, no idea who that is. And there's a reason why. It's because nothing wrong with being a banker. Nothing wrong with being part of corporate America. But the people that the world holds up as its heroes, the people that it names streets after, are the people who were the greatest servants of all. People like Martin Luther King Jr. People like the Lord Jesus. People like Mother Teresa. People like Billy Graham. People who gave their life, who give, right? Just like the Bible said, who became a servant of all, that the world holds up as the greatest among us. Um, <clears throat> friend, when you give your life away as a mom, as a worker, um, as a neighbor, when you care, when you give, Jesus says now you are living a formula that the world honors. Notice this, that servanthood does not lead to greatness, but Jesus said servanthood is greatness. Matthew chapter 20 and verse 26, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant. Let's bow our heads together. Most gracious Lord, we thank you for speaking to us today. Um, you know the desire of all of our hearts is to be king. We want to be served by others. That's what's innate within us. Lord, we ask that through the power of your Holy Spirit that you would change that. We ask, Lord, that we would become the greatest of servants in our community, uh, people that look to us and say there's a quality about them that's admirable. There's a quality about them that's worth emulating in my own life. Lord, we thank you for the formula that you give us this morning where we can be a blessing to the world around us. And it starts with our hands ready to serve. We ask, Holy Spirit, that in this quiet moment, as we remember the cross of our Savior, who gave his all, 
Lord, that we would be willing to do the same for those that we live in community with. We pray these things in Christ's holy name. Amen.